It's great to be a, a part of uh, something bigger than our own church. We say this all the time. It's not about you. It's not about me. And it's really not even about us uh, because we as a church are part of other churches that are doing things that an individual church could not do. And, and part of what happens through the Texas missions is benevolence. And part of what goes on through the Texas missions would be things like, you know, orphanages and uh, practical uh, care expressing the love of Jesus Christ, planting churches. And so just be mindful of what that giving emphasis is all about. I want to start this morning with a question, uh, and uh, hopefully it doesn't take you too long to answer this, but we'll see. If you were able to purchase, let's say you were able to purchase a dose of the vaccine that addresses COVID-19 when it comes out in 2025, and uh, you've got that dose, and you know how the dose is supposed to work. In fact, you believe in it. You believe in the vaccine. You believe that other people should take the vaccine. And you tell other people they need to take the vaccine. And you know how this mRNA or DNA or recombinant vaccine works. You know how it interacts with the chemicals of your body and all the rest. And you know how it's administered uh, intravenously or intranasally. You can tell everybody everything they need to know about the vaccine and you have the vaccine. If you do not take the vaccine... Here's the question. If you do not actually take this vaccine in which you believe, will it do you any good? Okay, they're still thinking about it. Uh, If you're at home watching, will the vaccine do you any good if you do not take it? No, fantastic. That's that's great. James makes a similar kind of comment in in his book that he wrote some 2,000 years ago to an audience of Christians, predominantly Jewish Christians. He says, if that's how it is of any product... You can believe in the product, but if you don't take the product, it's not actually going to do any good. And so if you have this faith in which you are so proud, you better put it into practice because if you don't take this faith that you hold so dear and put it into practice, your life isn't going to be any different than anybody else's life around you. In fact, it could even be worse than other people for for the knowledge that you had the knowledge, for, for the understanding that you had the faith, but you didn't actually apply it. I mean, it's one thing to miss out on something, but it's another thing to miss out on something knowing that you could have had more to live with regret on top of having missed the mark. James says, you've got to take this faith and put it into practice because when it comes right down to it, it's not just about what you know, it's what you do with what it is that that you know. It reminds me of this couple that was engaged to be married. They were very excited, except they were a little bit fearful that maybe they weren't going to make it because each of them had a secret they'd never told anybody else. And so as the wedding approached, the groom-to-be confided in his dad and said, Dad, I'm, I'm afraid this marriage isn't going to work. And he said, Son, why? why? Why do you think that? Don't you love each other? Well, yeah, we do very much, but my feet stink really bad, and I'm afraid that my wife is not going to want to share the same bedroom with me, let alone the same bed, so I'm a little bit concerned. And so the dad said, Don't worry about it. Just wash your feet several times a day, and at night, after you've washed your feet, put socks on when you go to bed. That way, everything will be fine. The son thought, that's a good plan. I'll stick with that. We'll try that. The daughter, on the other hand, she talks to her mom, says, Mom, I'm really worried about this. And she said, why? And the daughter explains, I have terrible morning breaths. Mom says, everybody has that. No, you don't understand. It's really bad. I'm afraid that this isn't going to work. And so the mom says, here's what you do. When you wake up in the morning, don't say a word. Immediately go to the kitchen, eat a stalk of celery or an apple, and then brush your teeth, and then say something. But only after you've gone through that morning ritual and the daughter thinks, well, that's going to work out just fine. So they get married, and sure enough, everything works swimmingly until six months into the marriage, the husband wakes up prior to dawn, early, 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 and he recognizes 
one of his socks has come off one of his feet in the middle of the night. And so he desperately looks through the covers to try to find the sock. He can't find it. He's getting a little frantic. This, of course, wakes up his wife. And without even thinking, she rolls over and says, what on earth are you doing? And he says in response to her, oh, my goodness, you've swallowed my sock. And the, the moral of the story is, it's great if you have a wonderful plan, but it all comes down to execution. If you, if you, if you have faith, but you don't actually put it into practice, you may as well not even have the faith. This is the point that James is largely making. It's like, look, just because you have faith doesn't mean everything is automatically, magically going to work out in your life. No, you, you may have checked the right boxes. You may have believed the right things. You may have gone through the right steps. You may have been baptized, all the rest. But if you, ta- if you do not take the faith that is so dear to you and actually apply it, if you don't actually work out your faith, it's not going to make any difference whatsoever in your life. So this morning we're going to be kicking off a little series, just faith works, and we're going to get very practical. But before we get into that, let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. This is James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. Those are the passages we're going to be studying. And it's one of the most important passages in the book of James. I think it's central to the book of James. Unfortunately, this is a text that is frequently misunderstood and misapplied, and so we're going to be very careful on interpreting it this morning. And we're going to start with just one verse, and and then we'll be seated. Chapter 2, verse 14, here's what James says. He actually starts with a question. James asks, what good is it? In other words, what good will it do? What difference will it make? What good is it? My brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds, and the average person is going to say, well, of course, it doesn't do any good at all if you don't put it into practice. And then James makes another statement that unfortunately throws so many people off because in this next statement, in this next question, interpreters have added a word that's not actually there in the Bible. What you will read next is, can such faith save him? Now, there's a word that's added here. It's the word such. Sometimes when people interpret, they have to add words or rework some things to make something clear. On the whole, I think it's a bad idea to add words to the word, especially when you add a word and it changes the meaning of the text. I've heard people preach, and I heard some last week. I hear people preach entire messages on there's true faith versus that faith or such a faith. But that word that or, or such or however your translation, that's not in there. In the Greek, literally, can faith save him? That's exactly what it says. So we're going to read the verse one more time. Here's what it says. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can faith save him? May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, Christians come to passages like this, and and here's where we get thrown off. And I've been teaching this class on biblical interpretation on Sunday nights. Not doing it tonight because tonight I'm encouraging people uh, to go to this Who's Your One uh, event at Great Hills Baptist Church, 6 o'clock down in Austin. We're not doing it tonight. But frequently we will talk about the importance of context and interpretation. The problem is when we come to the Bible, when we come to a word, we oftentimes read that word in the context of our own experience and so we miss the meaning of the word. Here's what I mean. If I were to ask you, are you saved? 
Now, if you're a Christian, an evangelical uh, Christian, if you're a Baptist or something like that, you grew up that way, and I say, are you saved? Almost 100% of the people are going to respond, yes, I'm saved, brother, I'm saved. I'm saved because I, I've got the blood of the Lamb covering my sins. I, I'm saved because when I was six, I prayed a prayer, and Jesus came into my life, and I know that when I die, I'm going to go to heaven because... I have an eternal relationship with God. It starts now, but it carries on for all eternity. I'm saved by my faith in the grace of Jesus Christ alone. I am saved. My my name is in the Lamb's Book of Life. I'm forgiven. I'm saved. That's what most of us are going to say immediately. If you were to ask someone in the first century, are you saved? They're going to look at you a little funny like, from what? What do you mean? In other words, the word saved wasn't just this grand theological word is just a word. And oftentimes people would use the word save the way we use the word saved all the time. That guy saved the game or that play saved the game or that book or that counselor saved my marriage or that word of advice or that deal saved the business or whatever. What we mean most of the time is something of great value has been preserved. Something has been healed. That saved me that saved my job or that saved my bacon saved oftentimes means simply what it means on the surface of things that made a difference that preserved something very important to me in the book of james three times the word save occurs all three times it's talking about here and now practical different salvation it's not talking the same way that we typically would think the Apostle Paul would be talking about saved, okay? You go over to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. This is uh, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God so that not by any work so that no one can boast. Are you saved? Does faith alone save you? You read that verse and you go, absolutely. Faith alone in Christ alone saves you. That is it done. James says, can faith save him? If all you have is faith, is that enough to save him? No, says James. Well, why would he say that? Because what James is talking about over here and what Paul's talking about over here, they're different. He's talking about different saves. He's talking about, is this going to make a practical difference in your life day in and day out? The question that James is asking is, is it possible for a family to come to church Sunday after Sunday and they sit together in the pew around the table or whatever the case may be and, and and they're believing and learning more about how their faith should work but when Monday through Saturday happens Jesus and the gospel and the implications of the gospel just go out the window and nothing gets applied can such a faith actually make a difference save them psychologically or relationally or sociologically is it going to save your finances if you believe the Bible but you don't actually do anything with regards to what the Bible says? Is that actually going to make a difference in your life? That's the question, and the answer is no. If you believe but you don't actually act on your belief, you may as well not even believe at all. That's not going to save anything about your life. That's the point that James is making. Now, some of you are thinking, well, I, that makes sense. It seems to flow. But, Ernest, you know, hey, I, I know you. You're, okay, you're clever. Are you not being too clever? You're not overthinking this? Are you making something up? Is, are, you, are you sure you're right about this? Yes, and here's why. Again, look at the context. You go back to the end of chapter 1, and, and James asks this really important question. You've, 
you, you've heard it before. You know, wh- what good is it doing if you don't do the word, uh, but you just hear it? So he says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Now, why does he care about us doing the word and not just hearing the word? He goes on and talks about the person who actually does the word, puts their faith into practice, and he says, this person will be blessed. Blessed how? Blessed by going to heaven one day when he dies because he's earned his salvation, proved he's... No, blessed in what he does. You want to put your faith into practice because otherwise you're going to be living your life just like everybody else is living their life. And just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that you can't succumb to temptation. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean automatically, instantaneously, everything's going to turn out hunky-dory in your life and perfect. No, you'll be blessed in what you do. And it's not just about you. You want to make sure that what you are doing with your faith has positive implications, blessings for other people. And so the emphasis in James as you continue through the first chapter is take care of the orphans, take care of the widows. You don't want to have a faith that is useless, he says. It needs to be of utility, that has to be functionally appropriate and helpful to other people. And then he goes on in the next chapter and says, don't just show favoritism to the rich. Actually, you shouldn't do that at all. You you should take care of the poor equally. In fact, if you have to bend over backwards for anybody, it ought to be the poor because those are the ones who are, who are really suffering and really having to dig in and make it through life. And then he talks about implications for marriage with regards to no adultery and implications for society without without murder. The whole emphasis here is if you have faith and you don't put it into practice, it's not going to do you any good. It won't work. Now, when I was a kid, I grew up in a particular tradition that went something like this. Every year, we would kind of gather the kids together and send them off to camp, and that's great. It wasn't just so that we would have fun. There was a hope in many parents' minds, maybe this year it's going to take. Maybe this year we'll send our kids, and they're going to get, you know, the Christian vaccine, and they're going to come back, and they're not going to act like teenagers anymore. They're going to get saved. And so they're going to go, and, and then there's going to be this Thursday night experience or Friday morning, and everything presses toward that. And, and maybe this year it's going to take, and they're going to walk an aisle and go, oh, mama, and it was such a good experience. And, and so finally, this person becomes a, a Christian, and it's, and it's for real this time. And then it's a wonderful experience, and parents are so happy because the parents, like a lot of other people uh, in Christianity, just look at Christianity as a vaccine. And if you get it, automatically everything just kind of works out. And then we'd have these things, and this is a tradition that's very common. And it's not necessarily bad because if you think I'm against being saved, you ought to get saved, (laughs) okay? If you're not already, let's get that taken care of. But the idea was if you just get the dose, automatically everything's going to take care of itself. And that's how it is with a vaccine. You take the vaccine, and then, then you're done. You don't have to apply. It has been applied, and everything magically, mysteriously falls into place. So we'd have these things, revivals, maybe once every two or three years or something. And, and the idea is, well, the adults who think they are but really aren't actually need to this time. And then they're going to get it. And automatically, you're going to be a better husband and a better wife. And then when months later, that doesn't happen. Or when weeks later, it doesn't happen with the kids because kids are faster than adults. Uh, we just think, well, let's try this again next year. So we get the kids together, put them on a bus, send them off to camp. And maybe this year, the preaching will be better because... Last time, that guy wasn't that good, and maybe they're going to take a second dose. The first dose was kind of there, but it wasn't enough. We're going to get the second dose, and now they're going to get it, and automatically everything's going to fall into place. And then I would hear people say stuff like, you just have head faith. You don't have heart faith. It's like, what? How do I? I, I need heart faith. What do you do? I don't know, but you just take it up here and press it down here. And, and then I would hear the camp 
pastors say stuff like this, and this is, by the way, why I got saved like six times as a kid, and it never really took or something. I don't know. But the pastor would say something like, you know what? Christians don't sin. And I know everybody sins, but I've got five sins that if you do these, (laughs) we're pretty sure you're not a Christian. It's like, what? It's like something like, you know, uh, Christians don't think dirty thoughts. Are you teenagers thinking dirty thoughts? And I was thinking, well, I wasn't until you asked me. And, uh, and so I, I, I guess, you know, I guess maybe I'm not. I just have head faith and maybe heart faith. Well, how do I get heart faith? Well, I'm not exactly sure, but let's try this again. And so I walk forward and I say the prayer and it's like, maybe this time and I'd probably like it. I could really feel it or something. And you know what James says to all that? Like, that's just messed up. Look, you, you believe you've prayed, you've repented, you're trusting in Jesus alone, not in your own righteousness. I know you're falling short, but here's the thing, James says, here's what you need to do. You don't need to trade in head faith for heart faith or real faith or authentic faith or whatever that means. Here's what you need to do. You need to take your faith and put it into practice as if the real problem up until this point is the preacher wasn't good enough or the music wasn't hot enough. Or I just didn't get something yet. And maybe this year I'll get it. And it's the fault of the vaccine because it's only 50% effective. But if I take it three times, maybe it's going to take this time. But it's not my fault because I haven't gotten real faith or it didn't get heart faith. And I don't even know how to do that. And what James is saying is, no, 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 no. Listen, you have faith. Take the faith and apply it. Stop thinking I don't have it yet. Or it hasn't happened for me. Take the faith that you have and put it into practice. Because if you don't do that, it's not the fault of the faith. It's your fault. Because you have what you need. Now, get on with it. That's the point that James is making here in this particular passage. And and, and James knows there's going to be a little bit of kickback on this direction here. And that's why he kind of has this little imaginary conversation that comes up a few verses later uh, with regards to this person who's debating him about real faith and not and all the rest. But James puts it like this, just talking about the practicality of it. Back to verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can faith save him? And then he gives a very practical, not hereafter, but a here and now uh, illustration because that's what he's talking about is making a difference in our lives right now. He says, suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does, and see there's that word again, does, action, does nothing about his physical needs. What good is it? And the answer, of course, is it's no good at all. Because the faith is not put into practice. The faith that isn't actually practically applied doesn't practically make a difference in anybody's life, not in yours, not in anybody else's. James says, that's how it is in every facet of life. So let's get on with it. Verse 17. In the same way, by by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, it is dead. And James doesn't talk about fake faith versus real faith. That's not here. He's not talking about head faith versus heart faith. That's not here. He's just saying you got to take your faith and put it into action because if you, everybody's got faith, the question is, is it dead or is it alive? Are you letting it breathe and move or not? And here's what I've discovered with regards to my own faith. I know that oftentimes when I'm talking about faith or God's talking to me, Here's what's happening in my, my mind. Oh, I need to, I know I need to do that. I need to follow through on this. I need to put that into action. 
But what often happens is I will take my faith because I don't want to be obedient. I take my faith and bury it six feet under. You know the faith is there because you're feeling conviction, but we often make the decision to not unleash the faith that we have. James says you can't do that. Let it out. Let it move. Let it breathe. Put it into play. And it's going to look look like something in particular. There's going to be action. Now, James knows there are going to be people that are pushing back against him. And so he makes up this imaginary figure with whom he can have a conversation because he's a dialogical preacher, okay? And so he, there's this figure that says something against James in verses 18 and 19. This is the imaginary person. and they're, But they're not entirely imaginary because this person represents all people who would say something like, okay, James, I know where you're going with this. You're going to tell me, since I believe in Jesus, since I believe in God the Father and all that, that I know what you're going to do. You're going to start telling me how to live my life. That if I believe this way, then I ought to act this way. If I believe A, then I need to do B. I know where you're going. You're about to start telling me how to live my life. And I don't think that's really what I want you to do. And this is very common Because you know if you're a parent, you're discipling your kids, whether you are doing a good job or not. I think most of you are. I I would believe that. But whether you automatically assume that, you know you're discipling your kids. If you're a teacher, you are in some respect or another discipling the people in your class. As a pastor, youth pastor, anybody in ministry, you know there's always a little bit of resistance to actually press people to apply. Because here's what most people want, and I want this too. This is terrible but it's true in my flesh as a churchgoer here's here's one of the four things that i want it's any of these four things some of us we want all the four most churchgoers i think and a lot of churches are like this what i want is just good doctrine you know teach maybe give me a break sometimes maybe cut it short earnest but just teach number two i want you to preserve tradition and this is not just for traditional churches. Contemporary churches, new churches develop traditions because the studies have shown that traditions can emerge in a, in a community of believers within two to three years. So before your child is potty trained, most churches already have traditions that they're protecting. Isn't that crazy? But so just teach, you know, give me good doctrine, you know, preserve the traditions. Oh, give us a comfortable place of community where we just kind of fit and then provide spiritual or religious experiences. And there's nothing inherently wrong in that. In fact, you know, I'm, you know, we're going to have a staff meeting tomorrow and, and uh, Peggy Lim is going to be there. And we're going to be talking a little bit about, okay, what, what are you going to do? Because this year we, we can't do the hang of the green. I hate that, but we, we just can't. And then we're doing the, doing the candlelight service. What are we going to do? How are we going to meet outside? Are we going to light the building? I'm not exactly sure, but we don't like these things. We want to preserve traditions. We want a safe place where we can be in community. That's why we don't like COVID-19. We want the good doctrine and the, and the, and the teaching and all of this. And, and traditions arise for certain reasons. This is all good, and we want to have these experiences. But you'll commonly get pushback on this. But don't go to telling me how to live my life. Don't go meddling. That's exactly what James is dealing with, with this imaginary person who's saying, Just because we believe the same thing doesn't mean we have to do the same thing. And the guy says, I'll prove it to you. I'll give you evidence of what I'm telling you is true. You can just, we can all believe the same thing, but leave my life alone. Verse 18. Uh, Paul says, uh, Paul, James says this, but someone will say, here's the someone that he's imagined. You have faith. I have deeds. 
So this friend is saying, okay, look, James, you have faith. I have deeds. In other words, I can show you what I believe by what I'm doing, but I don't know that that's connected because you have faith, but can you show me your faith? He says, show, James, show me your faith without deeds as if they're disconnected, and I will show you my faith by what I do. It's like you're in your world, I'm in my world. They don't exactly connect with one another, and it's a little bit hard to follow, but it's just like prove me wrong, James, and it's a little bit hard to do that if the presumption is faith and deeds are just absolutely naturally separated. But he says, I'll give you a case in point. I'm going to prove what I'm saying is true. Verse 18 is continued by 19. The imaginary friend says, you believe there's one God. I'm going to prove to you that faith and works are separate. We can work our faith out in different ways. You believe there's one God, good. And, And then this imaginary friend says, even the demons believe that and shudder. See, we rejoice at the fact that there's one God. The demons shudder. So here's the reality. Hey, we both believe the same thing, but we act different. He's just saying, look, look around. And I could tell you this. Look around at other churches. Look around at other believers. There's other people who profess Jesus and they would say the Apostles' Creed and they have wildly different lifestyles than many of us in this room. And he's just saying, this is just a fact. People can believe the same thing and do different things. The end, end of discussion. Just look around. That's how it is. Now, he has a point, sort of, but James says, just because different people respond differently to the truth doesn't mean they should respond differently to the truth. He says, you fool. You know why? It's like, if you're using demons as an example, you got problems. That's a bad example. You foolish man. Do you want evidence? You want evidence that what you're believing is not true? Now, which is, by the way... uh, let me just tell you how I've heard this preached before with regards to the whole demon thing. I've heard, and I, and I actually heard this last week. I do listen to other sermons, and sometimes I get really good stuff. Sometimes I say, wow, that's really horrifying. And, and people will, no, really, because I've heard people preach this, and I heard it again this last week. You know what the problem is? People in churches have demon faith. Like, what? You've got demon faith. What? What's demon faith? Well, demon faith is when you believe the right thing, but you do the wrong thing. And if you believe the right thing and you do the wrong thing, you've got demon faith. That's not the point James is making. We all do wrong things. That, but that's not the point James is making. That's not even James talking. That's the person he's debating against. His whole point is, yes, people do believe the same thing and do wrong things. But that, but they're wrong. There is a connection between you, what you believe and how you should live your life. And he says, you want proof of this? I'll give it to you. And he draws the attention of the Jewish audience to these two figures with which they are going to be very familiar. One of them is Abraham. He says, look at Abraham. First, let's go to Abraham. Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. Which, by the way, in case I don't get to this, uh, you, you know your faith and your actions are connected. And here's how you know this. On those occasions when you've not just believed, but you actually did what you believed, your belief increased. Your faith is matured and it is complete when you obey. There is a connection, obviously. And if you're not living out your faith, your faith is either stagnant or shrinking. It's still there. You want your faith to grow? You say, well, I I still do want my faith to grow. Then make the decision to act on what it is that you know and it will be complete. It will become mature. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified or declared righteous by what he does and not by faith alone. And 
And again, some of us, we read that and go, oh, wait, you're declared righteous by what you do. But again, James is talking about saved more like horizontally. He's not like Paul vertically. And, and the reality is, in practic- for all practical purposes, you can't just believe. You've got to act on what you believe. And, and, and James says, here's how it is. Think about it. What do you like about James? And the audience he imagines is saying, well, or what do you like about Abraham? And the audience says, well, here's, here's what I like about Abraham. Abraham uh, was told by God, just follow me, come after me. I'm not going to tell you where we're going. And then Abraham just started following God. It was amazing. I don't know that I could do that. What a man of faith. So what are we celebrating here? Are we celebrating Abraham's faith or what he did? Well, I guess we're celebrating what he did, but they are connected exactly. Or what do you like about Abraham? And somebody says, I know, I like the story where God says, take your son, your only son, sacrifice him. And Abraham goes up on this hill and puts him on the altar and is about to sacrifice him because he knew that God was going to raise him from the dead. And I don't know how all that works out, but that was amazing. Who can do that? What a man of faith. And so you ask, well, what are you celebrating here? Well, here's what I'm celebrating. I'm celebrating what Abraham did with what he believed. Exactly. Just because as a believer you are in relationship with God by faith alone through the grace of Christ alone doesn't mean that faith and obedience were ever meant to be separated from one another. Our faith is completed by what we do. Our faith is seen in what we do. In fact, James would maybe say to the audience, where would we be as a Jewish nation if Abraham didn't actually do anything? We wouldn't even be a nation. Exactly. Then he goes on and, and, and talks about Rahab, who's this harlot who lives in uh, Jericho. The people of God are about to attack Jericho, so spies come in, and she hides the spies. They come to her place. She says, I'll hide you. I'll protect you. They ask her, why are you doing this? And she says, well, basically, I've heard about your God, and I'm going with the people. I'm going with the God who separates the Red Sea. So I, I'm, I'm with you guys. So she hides the spies, protects them. Later on, after they've been hidden and they're going back, out to their people away from the army of Jericho, she says, wait, wait, wait. Before you go, can I ask you a question? Can you do me a favor? And I say, sure. When you attack Jericho, would you allow me and my family to be saved? And they say, sure. And it's at that point that James says this in verse 26, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. And the point that James makes is, Her act of faith, not her, I believe you, but I'm going to turn you in anyway. Her act of faith, her actually following through on what she believed, is why she was saved. And we're not talking about when you die and go to heaven being saved. What are we talking about? Here's how it goes. Here's how the whole story ends. The walls come down. Everything crashes down. But Rahab's house is the only one still standing. And everybody's like, eh, you know, don't look now, but the prostitute's house is still there. This is a little weird. But you know why she was saved? Because of what she did. Her, her life and the lives of her kids were saved because of what she did. Now, the problem around churches who separate too much faith from works is this. The good thing in separating faith from works is we don't have some little, I don't have some five top sins list that I'm going to say, if you're doing these, you can't possibly be a Christian. Whose list are we going to live by here? We've all fallen short. We've all, we've all sinned. We're all still growing. We don't judge if we're in or out on the basis of how we work. Now, this is not to say that Jesus doesn't make a point. Many are going to say to him on the day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this and this and this? And he says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers. There is a connection between faith and works. Jesus is the one who judges. I don't. And you're accepted on the basis of faith, not on your works, but your faith should work itself out. 
So there's a good thing that we separate things out so we know, hey, people are still growing and, it, and, and you didn't gain your salvation by your works and you're not going to lose your salvation by your works. So nothing is going to change your relationship with the Father if you have faith in Him through Jesus Christ and nothing's going to change your relationship with me if I find out some dirt on you. Okay, so that's a good thing. But here's the, here's the downside of separating things out too much. We start thinking about Christianity in terms of, well, you know, I guess I didn't get it. I guess it didn't take... If you have faith and your life is going down the drain, that's on you. You can make a decision now to start exercising your faith, to start putting it into practice. Don't be waiting for something that you don't have. James's point is you have what you need, utilize it. The other problem with separating things out too much is we, we have this tendency, and I know this is, this is just, I don't know if it's human t- tendency or Baptist tendency, I'm not exactly sure, But we have this tendency to kind of come to church to pray our way out of situations that we have behaved our way into. Someone put it like this. People, you know, Monday through Saturday, people sow their wild oats and then they come to church on Sunday and pray for crop failure. Don't separate out your faith from your works because if you do, your life will be a disaster. I have it on good authority from people who work in prison ministry that prisons are filled, jails are filled with people who are professing Christians. Now, I'm not here to judge whether they're not or, or... There are people that are not in jail that are worse than those in jail, okay? I mean, just just being real, okay? I'm not judging who's in or who's out. But again, that's Jesus' purview. But you're going to find a lot of people who are professing believers. They would say the Apostles' Creed. They would sing right along with us. And they've absolutely destroyed their lives. And they've destroyed the lives of other people. Because they've not taken their faith and put it into practice. We get into this tendency of thinking, well, because I prayed the prayer, automatically I've just got this, you know, little bubble of of plexiglass or bulletproof glass around me. And nothing's going to touch me. And everything's going to work out automatically. And James says that is a terrible viewpoint. And you say, but Ernest, if I'm saved by faith alone through grace alone and my eternity is set because of what I believe, then why would I be especially motivated to put my faith into practice? Here's why. And James keeps getting back to this again and again and again. Because if you don't put your faith into practice, you in this world, in this life, you will not be blessed and no one else through you will be blessed. And that's a shame, especially when you have at your disposal everything you need for an an incredibly blessed life. Think, think of it like this. I, uh, I, I recently helped Shelby move. Jean and I helped her, uh, this was, I don't know, th- four weeks ago, something like that. We had a U-Haul loaded it up with, with furniture from the house and moved it down to her apartment down in Austin. And uh, so we rented the U-Haul Thursday afternoon, 4 o'clock, come home, open it up, fill it up, we're done early evening. And then it occurs to me, I've got this U-Haul parked in the front with all this furniture and boxes and stuff. The door's closed, but there's not a lock on it. I've got to go get a padlock. And then I think, well, maybe I don't need to go buy one. Maybe, maybe I have one. So I look through the house, can't find one, go to the garage, and sure enough, buried, I don't know, six feet deep, in, in the back, on a shelf, behind all this stuff, I didn't have one padlock, I didn't have two. I had seven, we had seven 
seven padlocks. Now, here's what's what's really funny. And, and if anybody needs a padlock, I've got some in the car. I don't, seriously, I'm not kidding you. But I did bring three in that they look like they haven't even been used. And, and this one, I thought, well, that, that hasn't been used. It's so shiny. The keys are there. It doesn't look like it's even, even been open. I think this is new. But I'm sure that this one's new because it's never been opened. And I'm thinking, how do I have a padlock that I didn't even know about that's never been opened? And I'm thinking, oh, here's what happened. In the past, I was like, I need to go buy a padlock. And then I went and bought a padlock. Then I came home and said, oh, I don't need that padlock. I already had one. And so this is the one probably that I bought that I never opened from before. And then I forgot I had this one because I've got another padlock. Now, this isn't in a package, but it's still got the paperwork on the keys around it because I've never used it because probably, again, I thought, oh, I, I need a padlock. And I went and bought a padlock. And I forgot that I already had some padlocks. If I had two that hadn't even been used. Now, I felt a little bit foolish and wasteful. But that sort of thing happens when you have what you need on the shelf and you don't even know that it's there. That's just kind of embarrassing. But here's tragic. Okay, imagine this. Imagine you're home with your spouse, your husband, your wife, and they're having a heart attack. Imagine your wife is having a heart attack and you don't know there's a defibrillator. I said that right? I should have just stopped after the first one. You don't know there's a defibrillator up on the top shelf of the bathroom closet. And even if you knew, you, you didn't know how to use it. It's not just that your spouse died in your presence. On top of that, you should have known better. You should have done better. But you didn't. And now there's the failure on top of the guilt. That's bad. Or imagine you're a parent or maybe you're a grandparent at your son or daughter's house and your grandchild goes into anaphylactic shock. But you don't know there's an EpiPen in the kitchen drawer. Or you don't know how to use it even if you know where it is. That's tragic. Here's where it gets really, really sad and hard to swallow. I think God all the time sees marriages, souls, families disintegrating. He sees the neighbors of Christians groping and stumbling in darkness. And he's saying to those of us who have faith, it's on the shelf. Take it down. Utilize it. For God's sake, for the sake of Jesus Christ, for the sake of your family, for the sake of your own soul, for the sake of the testimony of the gospel, you take your faith and put it into practice. What does this mean for everybody? I don't know. Maybe there's an arena in your life where you just know, I know what I need to do. Well, then do it. James says, will faith save you? And the answer here is absolutely not. You want your life to turn out different than a lost person? You don't want to be another statistic? Then take your faith and do it. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Dear Holy Father, I uh, I do pray that as we get into this series on faith works that people will know this isn't legalistic. I mean, our, our relationship with you doesn't change on the basis of what we do or don't. 
It's all the grace of Jesus Christ accepted, received by our faith. But I also know that sometimes we get really kind of foolish and we don't know what we have and we don't take it off the shelf and we don't apply it and we fail to recognize that when we actually apply our faith, you apply yourself to our lives in a powerful way for our benefit and for the benefit of other people. Lord, there's a lot at stake. It's either receiving the blessed life, which is wonderful, or having missed out on the blessed life and others missing out on the blessed life. And so that's not just missing the mark. It's missing the mark also filled with a certain amount of understandable regret. Your your word teaches that when it comes to others around us, whether it's our families, as was the case with, with Rahab, or a nation, as was the case with Abraham, when it comes to the people in our lives, the communities of which we're a part, the nation of which we're a part, if we don't actually put our faith into practice, other people suffer too. So Lord, help us to get off this kick of don't you tell me how to live my life. James rightly says to this person arguing against him, you fool. May we not be foolish. May we May we be wise and in the process know in a practical way what it's like to be blessed and to be a blessing. Dear Holy Spirit, we pray you would apply this message to our lives and to help us to follow through on what it is we know we should do that we would not be hearers of the word only, but doers. And we pray that in Christ's name. Amen.